Welcome to Zuma JD, interview number 12. I'm your host, Zuma JD. This is the show where I interview the greatest minds in crypto. One of the most popular interviews I have done so far was with Suzu of Three Arrows Capital. Today's guest is Carl Davies, the other founder of Three Arrows. I'm very excited to bring you this one, so let's get straight into it. Carl, how's it going? It's going well. Really appreciate you having me on. No worries. So how's trading going at the moment? Are you enjoying the market? Yeah, I mean, market's been pretty favorable. So uh, yeah, all's well here. Sweet. Maybe before we get into it, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and Three Arrows Capital. Sure. Um, so uh, I co-founded uh, Three Arrows Capital back in 2012, um, and we actually started in FX markets. Prior to that, I was a derivative trader at a bank, um, but we saw some opportunities in emerging market FX. And uh, it was right when banks basically had their own platforms. Um, and similar to crypto in 2016, 17, everyone had their own platform, all had different prices, and there were plenty of arbitrage opportunities. So um, we did pretty well through that um, for a couple of years, uh, grew into a couple of different groups, and, and did, I mean, did participate in some early crypto ARB in 2013 or so, but it was never a large part of what we were doing. Um, really wasn't until 2017 that we had some friends that did exceptionally well and then decided by the end of 2018, we would pivot the entire firm. So, um, at this point, you know, our FX was not making as much money as it used to make. Um, and we just took a strategic stance to say, we want to do hundred percent crypto. So, uh, pivoted, uh, everyone over all accounts, all capital, all desks. Uh, hired a bit, uh, and that's the only thing we do today. So we do primary investment. We do, uh, we have a DeFi uh, group called Defiance Capital that invests in uh, decentralized finance. We have uh, a couple other trading teams, some that do directional, some that do arbitrage. Um, but yeah, anything and everything crypto. Moving into crypto during 2018 would have been an interesting time because that was during the bear market, right? It was, yeah, uh, and part of the reason was we were quite late to the ICO um, boom, and we didn't want to be kind of on the tail end of that. Um, we also recognized that we didn't have the proper setup. Like as a trading firm, you can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to trade X. You, you kind of need to set up the connectivity. So you need to have a team that writes to all exchanges. So you have you know connectivity to each. You need to have market making strategies. You need to have uh, accounts that you can do borrow and lending. Borrow is very important for prop trading firms. Uh, you need to, it's, there's a lot that needs to be done basically. And so, yeah, it took maybe six months or so to set up a lot of things and then maybe really another year to really get, you know, good at it. I guess that approach where you plan ahead has really paid off for you guys because you're one of the most successful firms in the space at the moment, right? We got lucky for sure, uh, but <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say planning ahead. I would say more like we we did recognize that crypto, uh, you know, was going to be a very large asset class, um, and maybe the sell-off was a little bit overblown. But at the end of the day, like, it just takes time to set these things up. So uh, we weren't planning for like a you know, 18 month <laughs> bull run. <laughs> we were, we we're rather just building for a long time. 
I'd be interested to know specifically what you guys are focusing on the moment and just your general approach at Three Arrows. So we have a couple different uh, groups that have their own strategies, really. Um, but uh, I guess one thing we did is we recognized that DeFi was going to be quite big right before uh, you know DeFi summer. And we also recognized that we didn't have the expertise to do that. So one of the things we did is uh, we partnered with Defiance Capital. So that's Arthur Tiong, and uh, he's got a whole team. Uh, and yeah, we recognized that um, this was going to be big. We needed expertise. And so um, that, that kind of stuff uh, really pays off in the end because uh, you don't have to be good at everything, right? Um, you have to be good at certain things. You need a competitive edge, but, um, but you don't have to be good at everything. You can always find partners too. So we have you know, an options trading group that's quite good, uh, much better trading options in crypto than me. Uh, we've got a DeFi group that's quite good, much better at understanding DeFi and working with communities than me. We've got um, you know, an arbitrage trading, trading team where everyone has their own expertise as well, whether it's uh, listed, you know, high-frequency style algorithmic trading, or whether it's, uh, you know, broking style borrow and lending, because there's a lot of negotiation that happens on chats for that kind of stuff. So, yeah, everyone has their own competitive edge here. Yeah, cool. Obviously, over the past year, Bitcoin has had a dream run and seems unstoppable. Uh, but if you had to list some of the potential threats left for Bitcoin, what comes to mind? Right. So I'll say that these are my opinions, nobody else's. But um, I think the only existential threat really to uh, Bitcoin, uh, or the largest one, is US regulation. I think no other regulation in the world matters at all. Uh, there will always be another government or another regime that helps and supports Bitcoin, picks up the pieces where one you know, falls. But if the US cracks down in a big way, in a coordinated way, that, that could uh, really make a big dent in Bitcoin. Um, so that has always been a major concern for me. Um, but that said, it seems quite progressive right now. So not a huge concern at this very moment. That, that, that's, the, that's the largest concern for me, though. Yeah. On the regulatory front, what do you think the future of DeFi tokens looks like? Well, I definitely think that you need to, I mean, decentralization does matter at some point, right? And I think people even recognize this. So people are paying a large premium for decentralization right now vast majority of DeFi is happening on Ethereum, which is by far the most expensive. So I think the market really actually is willing to pay for true decentralization. Uh, otherwise, honestly, you should just go use a centralized exchange. The experience is uh, you know, faster, cheaper in many ways. Three Arrows has been investing pretty hard in a lot of the Ethereum competitors. Could you kind of explain more about your thinking there? I don't see them as direct competitors, actually. Uh, I see it as more of a, um, like there needs to be scalability. By, by far the biggest problem in uh, all of crypto, really, <laughs> is scalability. And there's a couple solutions out there. We've invested in a layer two solution on, on Ethereum, the uh, Starkware team. Uh, and we've also invested in other blockchains that uh, you know have, have certain scalability to them as well. So. I, I don't see it as a, uh, I, I just see it as like something that the whole market needs. Yeah. So you guys must be pretty excited about some of the changes that are coming to Ethereum over the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and some of it's, are, it's already happened too, by the way, like layer two is now. Um, you can go on DYDX right now and they keep, they started with a relatively small uh um, like maximum ticket size, and they just increased it, but they're going to be increasing it more. 
and that is a scalable, you know, uh, high throughput solution on Ethereum right now. So yeah, there's more coming too, but uh, it, it's progressive. Okay, so another topic that fans of the show wanted me to ask you about was institutional tradings and funds. So could you just explain when institutions are trading on leverage, do they do it in the same way that other traders do? Well, okay, so for a firm like ours, we don't trade with like a, like a net leverage. Um, so if our AUM is, is X, we don't long or short the market more than X. Um, actually, I would never short the market X. I would short the market, even if I did, like a little bit, it'd be a very small fraction of that. But I would never long the market more than X either. I would use rather gross leverage. So if we're doing, let's say, a futures basis strategy, buy, spot, sell, future, um, there my book size might be bigger because you know I, I, I'm not taking a net position on the market. I don't care if Bitcoin goes up or down. Yeah, I think of it more in, in those terms. And then, yeah, we have lots of... Uh, counterparties that we deal with for borrow and uh, and we try to get favorable terms with exchanges. Mm. Would you be able to comment on whether you think there's any kind of systemic risk growing in crypto, especially over the last year as this bull market has gone on, the amount of money moving into the space? Are there some risks that are growing here that people aren't really paying attention to? Well, I, I, on a, people have brought this up a number of times. I think it is absurd, to be honest, in crypto. In crypto, the rehypothecation happens no more than one time, basically, right? So there, there might be someone sitting on capital or Bitcoin or Ethereum, and they will lend that to an intermediary, right? And then that intermediary uh, will relend it to a someone doing an arbitrage trade, right? Like me. And that's it. Like, that's where the capital stops. It's not like it gets rehypothecated 10 times repackaged, levered up, like that doesn't happen at all, right? Uh, it's very different in the non-crypto world where in like mortgage-backed securities, you might have tranches and of debt that get repackaged and relent on, and then it really does become systemic, right? Because uh, it's piles and piles of leverage. In crypto, I just don't see that. I always just see it as like one level of rehypothecation. I remember in 2017 that there was a lot of confusion about market makers and the role they play in the market. And I have a feeling that a lot of that confusion is coming out again, but this time it's directed towards VCs and institutions. People, not with bad intention necessarily, just misunderstanding the roles different actors have in the markets. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Like market makers are some of the most risk averse people in the world, right? <laughs> they take, they make pennies on the dollar many, many times over and over. Um, and they're doing it largely with their own capital. So they, I, I, actually, if you want to talk to some of the most salty people in crypto, it's market makers that have been here since 2013 because they've made a ton of arbitrage profits, but they probably would have made a ton more if they had just like hodled, right? So yeah. I, no, no one's crying. They, they all did well, but they, I, I, I'm, I guess my point is, um, yeah, the idea that market makers take like absurd risks is uh, crazy town. That, that, that they're the most risk-averse people in crypto. In this bull market, we've seen Bitcoin make a lot of strides forward in terms of mainstream acceptance. The main moment for me uh, was when Tesla said they were going to put Bitcoin on the balance sheet. And you've had commercial banks come forward and say that they're going to potentially offer Bitcoin custody or trading. 
Do you think that there'll come a time where cryptocurrency is considered just as a kind of subsector of, of mainstream finance and there isn't really this distinction between mainstream finance and cryptocurrency anymore? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's the direction we're headed in. I, I mean, this is pretty much the whole rally all the way th through today is really not a retail rally. Like this has very much been institutions, right? Uh, and the high net worths, this has been uh, treasuries, this has been, you know, banking and financial institutions, but, but it, it just hasn't been like mom and pop on the street or uh, I don't know, little Joey in the basement with like a thousand dollars. Like it largely hasn't been that. With the exception of uh, some of the DeFi stuff, that very much has been a community uh, grassroots kind of a move. But I would argue that the Bitcoin side really hasn't been. That has very much been an institutional move. So I think that those people are just going to demand the same thing from their institutions that, you know, they, they would for any other product. In that case, then, wouldn't Bitcoin lose its kind of outsider rebel status? <laughs> well, uh, Hasu has that uh, beautiful chart. I, I don't know who to give actual credit to, but he's the one that keeps posting it, uh, where it says the Bitcoin narrative over time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I expect it to change many more times. I mean, it used to be about payments and now it's more of a digital gold, right? Um, but it might change even more in the future, who knows? Um, Bitcoin can mean whatever you want to you. So in that case, what are the final things that need to happen before cryptocurrency becomes mainstream? Or is it more that it's just a little thing that little shots that keep on shooting, for example, the PayPal integration, the Visa integration. You just need these things to keep on happening. There isn't big hurdles that we have to jump. I, I actually almost see it as a cycle of capitulation where uh, first, in, in like uh, traditional institutions are uh, accustomed to being rentiers uh, or providing an agency to their clients and extracting fees of some sort, right? But the problem is Bitcoin is all about dis disintermediation, right? So if you look at some of the uh, institutional products that you know traditional finance uh, firms are coming up with for crypto, they like don't integrate as well as you would hope into crypto, right? Like for example, sometimes you can deposit Bitcoin, but you can't use it. Like Bitcoin, you can wrap in WBTC, you can stake it in the pools, like you can do many things. Ethereum is incredibly useful in many different ways too, right? So, and then if you go to DeFi tokens, well, now you have to use them, right? That's the whole point, right? So there are some institutions that you can't custody, like you can trade through them, but you can't custody. Well, okay. And then there's others that you like, it's like a lobster trap. You can send them in, but you can't send it back out, right? So it's good to see offerings from some of the largest institutions, but ultimately there needs to be another cycle of capitulation where they actually use the blockchain the way it's supposed to be used, right? Um, and, it, and they're not inhibiting it. Yeah, I, I almost see it as like a Venn diagram where they, there's no overlapping intermediate, inter, like middle part, where, whereby someone in crypto would never use this new uh, like financial institutions product because it is not integrated in crypto at all. It's like you can just send money in and then it just sits there, right, or something. But maybe it brings in a whole new kind of investor that is just used to trusting this institution and doesn't fully understand or care to integrate with the rest of crypto. And so that maybe they just are okay just like buying and hodling in there or just trading and using another custody solution or something. But eventually it needs to get integrated, is my point. Like eventually these people will, will learn and then it needs to be like actually used and integrated into the system, become more crypto native. Yeah, I've recently been reading some stuff about how hedge funds 
and funds in general are becoming more powerful than banks, whereas in the past the power dynamic was much more slender towards banks deciding what happens in the finance world, whereas now it's the funds that kind of decide what happens. Do you have any ideas on this? Okay, I've interacted with banks mainly as a prime brokerage account. Uh, a prime broker is someone that provides custody, financing, um, but most importantly, credit intermediation to all, for all of your trading, for OTC trading. So if you're, for example, an FX trading firm, you may trade with 40 different counterparties on, and 10 different venues, and you need all of that cross-margined in the same place. And a, a prime broker will finance that for you. And before 2008, there really were not many prime brokers. Actually, the ones that I could name, you wouldn't even, even consider to be prime brokers today. Like the whole market changed. All the big bald bracket firms came in because they recognized that people were very concerned about credit intermediation. Banks at that time were considered to have the, you know, some of the best credit and be in a good place for this. And they could provide you know, financing and ISDAs and things like that. But today, like, so Credit Suisse has 25.5 billion market cap and lost a reported 5 billion or so, or a speculated 5 billion uh, on the, uh, you know, a recent hedge fund blowing up, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty risky. So, <laughs> like, and, uh, and hedge funds, you know, are actually getting quite big right now, right? Um, and crypto, like, prop trading firms have gotten pretty big too. So, like, I just, I, yeah, I think if you drill down to what is a prime broker, you don't need credit intermediation anymore. You can just, like, face, big boys can face each other and be okay with that. They don't need like a bigger boy in the middle to face anymore. But that's not to say like all banking functions are dead. Like, sure, like fiat gateway stuff, you know, that should be done by, you know, banks, right? Or, or, or it could be uh, improved upon by some te technology, tech startup or whatever, but basically it doesn't need to be done by hedge funds, right? <laughs> um, but when it comes to financing or uh, credit intermediation, yeah, I, I think we're kind of getting to the state where there's no intermediation needed. Moving back into the crypto topics, one constant theme through this bull rally has been telling people to hold on to their crypto and not sell it to the institutions. Just to just because you have a uh, a background in banking, if these institutional funds keep moving into crypto, how big can this space get? You know, if people hold on here, what's the kind of limit on what we can see happen? I mean, we're pretty long term bullish. We're pretty long-term bullish in general, um, but the way I'm thinking about kind of the near term is uh, about 900 Bitcoin a day is mined. That's at these prices, a little over a billion a month. Elon bought more than a billion. Sailor bought more than a billion. Like there's single individuals or single funds that are buying the entire miner supply every like monthly supply, right? You need like 10, basically <laughs> just need 10 of those guys per year, uh, not including all of the you know, smaller institutions or, or retail or whoever uh, to come in. So I think the reality is uh, like if you just do like a, like a stock to flow of <laughs> the demand side too, and it's, it's not easy, it's not hard to add up you know, more than a billion a month of inflows basically, given where we are in the cycle. Like, I don't know, it's maybe at some point, it, like pre-Elon, I'm making that announcement, a billion a month kind of sounded like a lot, right? But after that Elon announcement, it actually sounds like a very small amount, right? Because there could be quite a, quite more inflow uh, just from people following on that. And I think that's what we, we've seen and we'll continue to see. So I don't know where the, the, the final limit is, but yeah. 
So unless that buying stops, just by the rules of demand and supply, we have to keep going up. Yeah, like in the short term, it's just like more buyers than sellers. Like in the long term, you know, there's uh, Fed printing, there's all sorts of other stuff. There's also a secular trend maybe from uh, other assets. Um, right. So you've got like a couple tailwinds. It's not just like a pure macro environment, Fed print buy Bitcoin. Like, no, it's like also selling gold to buy Bitcoin. Also, you know, new, new entrants. Right. So you were saying earlier that in your opinion, the Bitcoin side of things has been super institutional led, but the DeFi and altcoin stuff at the moment has been a lot more retail led. Do you see that potentially changing as in institutions moving into the other coins? I, I would say that DeFi started community grassroots led. Uh, those guys have done pretty well. I mean, some of them may be bigger than institutions at this point. You know, in general, I think one major critique of DeFi has been because there are large fees uh, to trade, to transact, and because there's kind of like a knowledge gap for a new project, uh, it tends to be like a game of whales at first, right? So, and it would be nice if fees came down a lot that uh, that changed, right? Which I think it will. But yeah, like I, I just wanted to uh, change the wording on that. It, like I don't consider DeFi to be purely retail right now. <laughs> consider it to be like pretty like rich community members at this point. Uh, but they, but they started poor. So started poor like a year ago. Yeah, it makes sense. Another genre of crypto that I like to ask guests about is privacy coins. Obviously, a lot of big names in the space and are really into privacy coins. However, they've, they've never really had the bull rally that people have expected them to have. Do you have any thoughts on why that is and what's your personal opinion and approach on privacy coins? Pretty much every major uh, OG that I speak to who's been around for uh, you know four, five plus years in crypto, I mean, talks in some degree about um, privacy coins. Usually just Monero, by the way. I don't think people are mentioning other ones. But yeah, it tends to be like that to me seems to be the demographic. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't really have a particularly strong view on it myself. But yeah, I, I do know that there is a community out there of uh, pretty influential OG types that uh, are generally bullish this kind of thing. I think the thing I find interesting about privacy coins is there's such widespread interest across crypto, but they've never really had the rally that people expect them to have. Privacy is very woven into the ideology of crypto, but doesn't have the mass appeal that people expect it to. Maybe people don't really value their privacy as much as crypto people do. Yeah, I would say like the biggest OGs that have been around the longest, that have the most, that have the most, uh, you know, light on them too. Yeah, they care about privacy a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're very bullishless. Um, but, you know, uh, similar to regulation, like no one cares about regulation until it happens, right? No one cares about decentralization until it happens to a large degree. No one cares about privacy until it happens. You know, you, there's a major crackdown or something, right? I have one more crypto related question and then we can move on to a few other things before we wrap it up. One other genre, uh, I think a new genre of crypto projects that will be popping up is cross-chain uh, solutions. So essentially trying to bring the functionality of something like Uniswap to Bitcoin and other non-Ethereum blockchains. Is this something that interests you guys? Is this something that you're looking at? So. Our, I, I guess the way I frame that is our DeFi focus team, DeFi is capital. Uh, they should be the ones to do this kind of analysis. And uh, broadly speaking, they've been most focused on things on Ethereum. So 
Um, yeah, I, like at 3Os, we have invested in other layer ones. Actually, all the teams have been looking at layer twos. But in terms of like specific cross-chain implementations, I, I mean, we've made a couple of bets here and there, but like it's not, I don't think it's a huge thesis here. Interesting. The main reason I'm interested in the cross-chain stuff is that if you look at centralized exchanges, most of the volume is in the non-Ethereum pairs, as in the stuff that Uniswap can't do. But that could be because the stuff that you can just do on Ethereum is being done on the decentralized exchanges. So have to take it with a pinch of salt. But moving on from crypto, one thing you spoke about before is the kind of bigger picture stuff. So money printing going on in particular. How much does this factor into how you approach trading? And Well, we definitely do have a view on like structurally what asset class we want to be in. Um, if I thought the, that uh, interest rates were going to go uh, ratcheted much higher, I may not be in crypto right now. Because <laughs> um, that would be terrible for crypto. Um, but um, but yeah, I, like given that we have chosen the space already, um, we kind of don't an- like reanalyze every single, you know, uh, treasury like basis point move where we're not we are now in crypto it takes a long time for us to get here and get good at it and now we just maximize the space right so um we're rather focused on that yeah did you happen to read arthur hayes recent piece about this yeah it was fantastic absolutely fantastic yeah i 100 percent agree with that yeah it was one of the best things i've read in a long time actually I was starting to waver a bit and consider diversifying a little bit out of crypto but after reading that article i was kind of centered again and felt like I've got my money in the right space. One of the ideas he put forward in the essay was that essentially we're accelerating really fast towards a situation where you're either forced to increase rates and crash asset prices or risk social instability. What did you think of that? I I mean, I broadly agree with it, but I I would preface that by saying I'm not an expert and kind of neither is anyone, right? Like macro funds in general, haven't made much money for like 20 years, right? I know they've had a couple good years here, but like they also had like a period of five years where they made no money, right? So best macro traders in the world, not make a lot of money in general. Part of that is because it's a low rate environment, by the way. Um, but but either way, like, so why do like why do we have a, a view? Like we we kind of need to pick an asset that we believe in if, if you're going to focus on a single asset like this. Um, but given that you're here, like we can't reanalyze it every every day. <laughs> because you'll go crazy. Um, and you'll, 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 the other thing is you'll use it to justify like taking profits too early. Because uh, you'll see like a small like move in treasuries and then be like, okay, that's it. Now I'm out, sell everything, right? Um, but but it, did you really believe that? Or is it because you got uncomfortable or you had some other thesis and this, you know, pushed you over the line or something? So yeah, in general for like macro, like large macro views, I, I tend to think about it that way. Like, if you want to be a macro trader, then that's what you should be. You should be trading global macro. And and by the way, those guys like really don't make that much money. So, like, consider that. Um, and so consider what that that career path looks like too. But like, if if you want to be like a crypto guy, then um, or an FX guy or an equity guy, like I don't know. At, at one point, uh, I was only an FX guy, right? Yeah. Didn't really question whether I should be trading equities on a daily basis because it maybe it was more volatile than FX or something like that. Um, I just said, no, I want to be good at FX, like set up the best systems, uh, set up the mo- best accounts, set up the best team, infrastructure, uh, algo, like whatever ne- is needed, right? And that's kind of the way I'm thinking about crypto too. Like we're all on crypto, so let's just do it well. Before I get into a 
couple of fun questions to finish things up. I just have one more quick crypto-related question. I was thinking back recently, reflecting on where we've come through on this bull market, and I was thinking back just before the Tesla announcement, and it felt like actually we'd lost a bit of steam there. But when Elon Musk made the announcement that Tesla was going to put some of their balance sheet into Bitcoin, that really picked things up again. Maybe it's silly to think about hypotheticals like this, but I'm curious on your opinion on what you think would have happened if Tesla hadn't decided to do that. Where do you think we'd be now? I don't, I don't know where we'd be like today, but it definitely uh, was extremely constructive. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, Bitcoin up to 41K, um, I was actually think, starting to take some off. Um, and then fell down to like 33K, right? Then uh, Elon Musk news comes out, rallies up to 37. And then we get like a gift from God that Bitcoin, for whatever reason, it was like over-levered uh, liquidations. And we went, went back into like 33 down to 30K. That was like the best buying opportunity of the whole year right there, yeah. right? So that was obviously a max long, right? And yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely think it, it, it created a nice floor. I think that that's a better way to think about it. Like it creates a floor, like, you know, and then once you get rid of the left tail, then your risk reward profile changes a lot. Awesome. I just have a couple fun questions to wrap things up here. So firstly, when I announced on Twitter that I was going to be interviewing you as the next guest, there was a heap of comments about horse racing and horses. I tried to look into what that was about, but couldn't figure it out. So could you just explain what the go is there? <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, um, I've been a Uber bull of Bitcoin since like 10.5K. And that's when I was like, I, I, sometimes I don't like to make big public calls. Um, but that was when I really believed uh, we had broken 10K finally. And uh, there was just no going back at this point. And so I was calling for all-time highs over 20 And I just made a you know joke reference that I would get a horse if <laughs> um, Bitcoin broke all-time highs. And I mean, most people were not calling for all-time highs at that point, by the way. They just thought we were going to sink back into a bear market. But yeah, uh, so we are. Uh, we're getting a horse. Uh, turns out that's a uh, hard thing to do in Singapore. Uh, but there is, uh, we're, we're basically, there's a program where you can they, they stop these, uh, at, at the end of a polo pony or uh, racing horse's life, you can sponsor them and they can, and then like children can ride them. So we're gonna sponsor a horse, uh, just we're on a waiting list. So <laughs> can't, can't post for it yet. Nice. Very cool. And what do you like to do in Singapore to stay relaxed and take your mind off crypto a bit? I've got two daughters, so I spend a lot of time doing activities there. Uh, pretty much all weekends are taken up with that. Um, but yeah, we also do, uh, uh, we have a chess group that every Monday we play chess with a bunch of crypto guys. Um, we've got a poker group too that try to go, hasn't been as active recently, but at least once a month. We used to do it every week, but now we all have kids. But yeah, no, I, I don't know, normal stuff. Hit the gym a couple times a week, yeah. three, four times a week, something like that. That's really good, yeah. One thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is during this bull rally, a lot of people are making a lot of money, but they're not necessarily making sure to use that money to give themselves a better life in terms of happiness and balance and such. So I think it's really important that people keep that in mind. Oh, definitely. I've, I've been through a couple of booms. I had like my first big win was in 2014. 
Uh, I was uh, 26 years old, you know, hired 35 people, was trading 5 to 10% of all NDF volumes globally, like emerging market. That was like our big first win. And at that time, I was kind of, that was like my first big bull market, I guess, where I was, uh, you know, like, what do I do? Like, do I, like, retire? Like, go on, like, a party, you know, for a year? Like, what do I do, <laughs> right? And, um, yeah, I've kind of gotten older now and kind of thought, like, I actually love what I do. Um, so, yeah, have a, have a work-life balance. Like, love what you do. Very well said. Well, Kyle, thank you very much for your time and coming on the show. I think people are going to really like this one. Good stuff. Yeah, appreciate it.